our Bible we're reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 to 29, which is page 474 in the Blue Bibles. Uh, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Well, when I was uh, in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, I borrowed a car from my hosts and uh, went to a place in a different part of the city, about half an hour away. For those of us who live in Darwin, uh, I'm pretty sure most of us would have been to another city, uh, but certainly we don't have the experience of, of living in a large city where it's, you know, lots of freeways and traffic and all that kind of thing. But not being personally all that familiar with Sydney, with Sydney uh, I needed to use Google Maps to find my way around. Uh, I've done this plenty of times before in the US and in other places, and, you know, I can manage to get where I need to uh, without too much hassle. The most annoying thing for me in doing this, and it happens at least, I think, once a journey, is when I take the wrong exit off a freeway. I don't know if you've had this, had this experience, but uh, when, when you're unfamiliar with the city, you're unfamiliar with, the, with uh, where you're going, and, and the GPS kind of gives you, you know, it says this lane, but here, and then you okay, I think I've got it, uh, but then it turns out, no, it was actually that one, not this one. Um, it's so, so annoying, you know. And for me, it's always such a letdown when, when I think, uh, yeah, I've got it, yep, nailed it, but then I see that my GPS adjusts my, to reroute my path and it, you know, adds an extra few minutes to my journey and I'm like, ah, so annoying. It's disappointing to learn uh, that I took the wrong way. Well, our passage this morning causes us to ask ourselves, have I taken the wrong way? Am I on the right path? As we saw last week, uh, there are those who will take the path that leads to life, and there are those who will take the path that leads to destruction. Well, that continues in our passage this morning as Jesus tells us about two more groups of people. Those who think that they know him, but they don't. And those who hear Jesus's words, but instead of doing them, ignore them. As you can see from uh, the title uh, last week, I had two ways, one walk, part one, as in one walk, one way that you can walk down the paths. This week, I tried to channel our Puritan forebears and give it a, a subtitle so that it's just extra long. 
Two ways, one walk, part two, the foundation of our faith. This morning, we will look at our passage through three headings. One, false followers. Two, foolish foundations. And three, assuring authority. Let us hear God's words this morning and have ears to hear and hearts ready to respond. Uh, Let me encourage you to have your, your Bibles open as we do this and to look at God's word. Let's begin with number one, false followers. So last week, you might remember, I mentioned that in these last four sections in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at two of them last week, Jesus shows how the kingdom of God is binary. There are those who take the path that leads to life, those that lead to destruction. Kids, do you remember the two types of gates that Jesus talked about? What were they? Anyone? Yeah? That's right, the narrow gate and the wide gate. And do you remember how he described false prophets? What were they like? Does anyone remember? I'll give you a clue. It was a type of animal. Yeah? False. Yes. Yep. False prophets give false teaching. Yes. They were like ravenous wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And how did Jesus say that you can recognize um, whether they are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing or not? By their fruit. That's right. Jesus says, you will recognize false prophets by their fruit. And so this week, he continues on with both of those themes. He's saying there are still two ways. And in our first passage this morning, we see another focus on false prophets with a warning about false followers who give false professions of faith. Have a look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, notice how Jesus isn't talking about all people here. He's he's talking about a specific group of people who will be saying to him, Lord, Lord. So he's not talking about people who openly reject him. He's not talking about people who don't even want to say, Lord, Lord. No, he's, he's talking about those who cry out to him with some kind of submission, with, with some kind of plea for him to save them. They say, Lord, Lord. Now, people have debated what Jesus means by this, because you see, we as Christians living in this time after his whole life, death and resurrection, and the, and the work of the Spirit through the apostles in the early church, we would naturally call Jesus Lord, and we would understand that that is one way of acknowledging him as God. But that's not necessarily what Lord has to mean. It can also just mean master. We use that in English too. Lord Kent, Lord whoever it is. And this is the first time in Matthew that the term Lord is applied to Jesus himself. But it won't be the last. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, if you, um, you'll see in chapter 8, even if you look at the subheadings, you'll see that there are people who will ask Jesus for a miracle and they address him as Lord. As the book goes on, as Matthew goes on, continues to tell the story of Jesus, the title of Lord will become fuller and richer in meaning. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, right here in verse 21, Jesus' hearers may not grasp the fullness of what that means to call him Lord. 
But even if they don't, they would surely understand from what Jesus is saying here that he is Lord over all those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. He has that authority. And Jesus tells us right at the beginning of this verse that just because a person calls him Lord, just because they might acknowledge him as Lord, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is their Lord. This is why we must be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't give people false assurance of salvation. Sadly, many people have been assured that they are true followers of Christ simply because they have said certain words, simply because they have prayed certain prayers. They have been assured, oh, well, now that you have done that, you are a follower of Jesus. But words can be spoken just as much from an insincere heart as from a genuine one. Not everyone Jesus says, who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here echoes the language of Matthew 5.20, which is towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And notice how Jesus is using the scribes and the Pharisees as a comparison in that verse, but he broadens out the application to all hearers. The same is happening here. Jesus is applying these words to the false prophets that he condemned in the previous passage, but the warning is sounded for all who might make this claim. So who is it that enters the kingdom of heaven? Not the one who simply says, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. Now, there are a few firsts in this passage. This is the first time that Jesus says, my Father In the book of Matthew. Now, if you survey how Jesus talks about the Father in the Gospels, you'll find that he never refers to him as our Father. Now, I hear you saying, hang on a second, didn't he teach us to pray our Father? Yes, he did. That's right. That's the only time you'll hear him say that. He never refers to our Father, when he is talking to his disciples, you'll, you'll see that what he does often is he'll, he'll talk about your Father who is in heaven when talking to his disciples, but often when he's talking about and when he's highlighting the unique relationship that he himself has with the Father, he refers to him as my Father. You'll see that as you survey the book of Matthew and, and indeed the other Gospels. Now this, what this does is it it highlights Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. He is, as he will be called later on in the book of Matthew, the Son of God. And that makes him not just the Son, but it makes him God. He and the Father are one. And he does what he sees the Father doing. And he calls all who hope to enter the kingdom of heaven to do the Father's will. Who will enter? Those who do the will of my Father, he says. Obedience is what is required, friends. Not false words that claim allegiance to Jesus. Not simply saying, Lord, Lord. Obedience. I can hear you saying already, wait a second. Where's the grace? Don't we love the song Amazing Grace? Don't we, aren't we all about grace as Christians? Isn't that our thing? 
Well, we'll come back to that in the next section. And Jesus goes on in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Notice that he talked about the false prophets in the last passage. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now, kids, do you remember from last week what a prophet does? What's the job of a prophet? What are they supposed to do? Preach God's word? You're going to say that pretty much? Yeah, that's right. They are prophets are ones who speak on behalf of God. They say, thus saith the Lord. They are the ones who say, God is saying this, right? And as we saw last week, false prophets presume that they are speaking on behalf of God, but really they are speaking from their own minds. They are speaking lies. They say they are speaking on behalf of God, but they are not. Well, here the people who are saying, did we not prophesy in your name? They try to add a few more things to their resume, Notice how they're, they're trying to show their credentials. They're, they're trying to show their, what we call, bona fides. And whose name are they saying they're doing all these things in? What does it say? In your name. Didn't we do all of these things in your name? I don't know about you, but this is terrifying to me. There are those who we saw last week who are false prophets and false teachers. They know what they're doing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They will make this proclamation. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But there are those also who are self-deceived. We talked about this in question time a little bit last week. Those who think they really are doing the right thing. They are genuinely thinking I'm I'm doing these things in your name. I'm praying in Jesus' name. I'm preaching in Jesus' name. And who on the day of judgment will be in the same category as these people in verse 22. That ought to cause us to pause. Now, do, do these people actually do those things? Do they actually cast out demons and do many mighty works? Well, it seems like Scripture teaches yes. <laughs> Certainly there are some who claim these things and, and they really don't. Uh, all you have to do is go and look on YouTube and look up, you know, faith healers resurrecting people and it's just extremely clear that that is not real. Now, whether there are still people today who can do these things is up for debate, but many passages, including Matthew 24, 24, make it clear that counterfeit signs are real. There are those who did and perhaps who will do counterfeit mighty works. As I said, the false prophets and false teachers will be saying this disingenuously, but the principle of self-deception, the principle of false followers, which this taps into, is broader. There will be those on Judgment Day who think that when they approach Jesus, he will welcome them into his kingdom. And he won't. That ought to cause us to reflect soberly on our own souls, brothers and sisters. 
And this is why we find directions in the letters, in the epistles that do exactly this. 2 Corinthians 13.5 is a good example. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We ought to examine ourselves that we aren't self-deceived to ensure that we won't be sent away on judgment day. But that requires humility and honesty with ourselves. Now, there are some here this morning who, who feel this more keenly than others. Those who question they really, whether they really are doing God's will. Sensitive consciences. If that's you this morning, while I want you to hear this sober warning, I also want you to hang on till the end. Because we will talk about how you can have assurance of your faith and salvation. But in our day and age... It seems to me like most evangelical Christians are far too loose when it comes to being assured of their salvation. We combine praying the sinner's prayer with the aphorism of once saved, always saved, and then we think that there is no longer any self-examination required. I've prayed the prayer, once saved, always saved, I'm set, got my ticket. That is such a common belief and practice that you can look up Catholic apologetic websites and they will present us evangelicals in precisely this way. But God's word calls us to sober reflection of ourselves, especially in light of the reality that we see in this verse. The Second London Baptist Confession, which in this section is basically just a copy of the Westminster Confession, says this about those who have false assurance. Temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. This is a real risk. Have you given this due consideration? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It is literally a matter of life and death, of eternal life and death. Do not think that you'll be able to casually stroll into Jesus' presence on Judgment Day and think it'll all be peachy. Because the question on that day is not whether you claim to know the Lord Jesus, but whether the Lord Jesus knows you. Read verse 23. Then will I declare to them, then on that day will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Speaking of once saved, always saved, do you see what Jesus says there? I never knew you. 
There was never a point in which I began to know you. The relationship never began and therefore never existed. This makes sense. It's in line with the rest of the Bible and what Jesus says elsewhere. Like in John 10, 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He knows his sheep and they know him. He calls them by name. You see, we must be known by him in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine if uh, I rocked up to Kirribilli House, right? That's where the prime... Kids, you know what Kirribilli House is? I almost gave it away. No? Kirribilli House is where the prime minister lives. It's in Sydney. It has lots of really nice views of the harbour. Can you imagine if I rocked up there one day and I just said, G'day, Albo. Because as Australians, that's, what we have, that's how we address our Prime Ministers. Mr. Prime Minister Albo. It's me, JR, just wanted to pop in for a cuppa. What do you think would happen? Would he welcome me in? I mean, first of all, would he answer the front door? Probably not. No, he, he wouldn't. He doesn't know me. I would likely get tackled by Australian federal police officers and be taken off into a police wagon. Just as Queen Esther needed the acknowledgement of the king to enter his presence, so we must be known by Jesus to be welcomed into his kingdom. And if he does not know you, the destination is clear. Depart from me, he says. That is a statement of judgment. Jesus would use it again in Matthew 25, 41, when telling the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. What does he say to the goats? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what they're being dismissed to. When he says, depart from me, that is what, where they are going. Their way leads to destruction. And just to be clear, Jesus tells us exactly what such people are. They are workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, if you're wondering, is another one of those words that is used in the Bible to clearly refer to sin. Let me read to you from 1 John 3 verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And here lies one of the first clues as to how you can have assurance. For those especially with sensitive consciences, there is a key difference between someone who makes a practice of sinning and one who still stumbles but strives to turn away from sin. You see, the workers of lawlessness, they are those who get comfortable with their sin. They build their homes on doing what they please. They make a practice of it. They give up the fight to kill it. And that's why we continue as God's church to exhort each other to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus. Because if we slouch too long then it very well may be that he never knew us. Heed the warning, friends. Examine yourselves with sober judgment and build wisely. 
Which brings us to our second section, foolish foundations. I remember talking to an engineer once about work that he had to do, which uh, involved figuring out what uh, the, the various surfaces were of certain building sites. I remember he told me uh, that if a place had hard rock, you know, something like granite underneath in the ground, then, well, you, you don't really need to do anything to that. You can just build straight on top of it. But if it was something really soft, like sand... Well, then you have to come up with some very imaginative ways to make sure that the building is stable. So it's the kind of thing that you have to do in, in desert cities like Dubai. You figure out how you're going to make sure that this thing doesn't fall over. And so here in our passage is yet another illustration of Jesus's that has stood the test of time. His hearers in that area of Palestine where rains and flooding could occur easily, they would have been able to relate to this. But the concept is still familiar to us today. And notice how Jesus says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words. See, that's our indication that Jesus is connecting this to at least the previous passages and in some ways to the previous two. Everyone then. Here is, here is a conclusion from the things that I have just said. And that connection is made even more obvious when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. What did he say in the previous passage? Have a look in your Bibles in verse 21. The one who does the will of my father. You see, it's not those who say Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the father. Incredibly, Jesus says that doing his father's will and doing what he says will yield the same result. To do the father's will is to do what Jesus says. He and the father are one. So when you see him, you see the Father. When you hear him, you hear the Father. And so the one who does Jesus' words does the Father's will. And he or she is the wise person. The one who builds their house on solid rock. I'm sure many of us are well acquainted with this passage Kids, are you, any of you, familiar with the song that is based on the passage? Do you know it? It goes like this. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon... Do you know that one? Yeah. Who heard it for the first time this week? Yeah. <laughs> I sent it to a few of the parents in our church a couple of days ago, so hopefully you got to listen to it. Now you see, the song helps us recognize the, the binary options of the wise and the foolish person here. And like we saw last week, Jesus shows how there are only two different ways, and those two ways are polar opposites. One leads to the kingdom of heaven, the other leads to destruction. And again, these binary differences, they echo the wisdom teaching of the Old Testament. One example is Proverbs 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And it's a theme that Jesus will return to at the end of his ministry. You might remember the, the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. And the result is the same. The wise live and the foolish come to ruin. 
So when the rain and the winds and the floods come, the wise person who built their house upon the rock will stand. But the foolish one who built their house upon the sand will have a great fall. An important question to ask about Jesus' illustration is, what are the rain and the floods and the wind? For most of us, including me, I've always thought that they referred to, you know, the trials and difficulties of life. It makes sense, doesn't it? If if you live by Jesus' words, then when you go through hardship, your life won't fall apart. And when we say fall apart, we're talking about, you know, it won't be a really difficult life or, or, or things won't go really badly. You know, so as long as I do what Jesus says, then my life will be good and I'll be able to get through the, the hard times and I'll push through. Well, that's, that's certainly true. As we saw last week, those who walk through the narrow gate, they're going to have a hard path before they reach the destination of life. But consider the context of these last four passages that we've looked at. They have all been about the difference between true followers and false followers. And they have all talked about final destruction, final judgment. The wide gate leads to, what does Jesus say? Destruction. The tree, the false prophets that do not bear good fruit, what will happen to that? It will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but who are not known by Jesus, what will happen? He will say to them, depart from me. I think it's pretty clear that this is Jesus' main point in telling this illustration. The rain and the floods and the wind, they are referring to the judgment of God to his wrath that is to come on all the, those who choose to continue to live in their sin. They are about his righteous wrath that will sweep away sin. Just as he flooded the earth in the days of Noah, one day he will return and cleanse the world of all unrighteousness. And what separates the wise and the foolish? The wise hear his words and they do them. The foolish hear his words and they do not. Now, there are a couple of ways that you can hear this and miss what Jesus is saying. Probably more but there are two that I can think of which I think would be quite common. Firstly, you could hear Jesus as saying, as long as you do my words, then you'll be right. You could hear him as just another so-called wise teacher. And so doing his words means applying his wisdom. The world's richest man, Elon Musk, was interviewed by the guys at the Babylon Bee recently. And he said that he respects and agrees with the principles Jesus advocated. You hear that? Respects and agrees with the principles Jesus advocated. You know, things like the golden rule, turning the other cheek. You know, those are good principles, he would say. Things to live by. They are wise. People who think like this say that Jesus' words are simply words of wisdom that you can absorb into your life no matter what else you believe. And so as long as you apply those words... Well, then you're doing what Jesus says. That's one way of misunderstanding him. 
Another way you could misunderstand Jesus is by saying that the only way into the kingdom of heaven is through perfect obedience or as close to perfect obedience as possible. Basically, your entry into the kingdom depends on your performance. Make sure you get a passing grade on doing God's will. And as long as you get a passing grade, as long as you do enough works of righteousness, then you'll be right. Both of these miss the mark completely. Both miss the mark and both miss the good news. Both miss the gospel. As we saw last week and today, you can't just take Jesus' words as wise principles that you can live by. The choices before you are binary. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. The only way into the kingdom of heaven is through him. He is the gate, the door, the way. Jesus cannot be one part of your plan for eternity. He can't be one amongst many great things that are going to get you there. He is the only plan. And to think that you can earn your way in through your obedience misses the mark as well. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. To be justified means to be made right with God, to have your sin not counted against you. Paul is saying you cannot achieve justification through your works of the law. We cannot be made right with God through our works, through our obedience. As we sung about earlier, no humble prayer, no, no, whatever the words were, they were great words. There is nothing that I can do to establish my own justification. When we hear and do Jesus' words, we must hear and do all of them. And that includes the gospel of grace. What did Jesus say at the beginning of his ministry? We saw it a few months ago. Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or as Mark puts it in Mark 1, 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. Friends, don't be confused by Jesus telling us to do what he says. Because when we hear this, it's too easy to instinctively think in a task-oriented way. I need to do good in order to get in. I need to keep the commandments or God won't love me. I need to obey the law or Jesus will reject me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We must do all that he said, and that includes all that he has spoken by his Holy Spirit through his prophets and his apostles in all of Scripture. And the story of Scripture is one of how God redeems his people by his incredible grace. The essence of doing his words is receiving his grace by repenting and believing the gospel. All of God's word points to that grand story. The Bible tells us that we are born into sin and that our sin rightly deserves God's wrath and judgment. We are lawless and naturally so, but through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of sinless perfection that none of us ever could have lived, 
He gave his life as a ransom for many on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And that ransom has paid the price of entry for all who repent and believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sin. His atoning sacrifice means that his righteousness can be counted to us. And our sin receives its penalty in him. The ones who turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith, they will be the ones whose house will stand when the final judgment comes. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are yet to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, I plead with you to consider this today. Because the consequences are not small. They're quite the opposite. Look at verse 27. The winds blew and beat against that house, the one built on the sand, and it fell And great was the fall of it. Luke uses the same word in his account. The final destruction will be something far worse than anything any of us could possibly imagine. The fire does not go out. The worm does not die. So great is our sin against an infinitely holy God. But the good news is that it doesn't have to end that way. Your story does not have to end that way. Yours can be the house that stands. And I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards, if you're interested. For my brothers and sisters, I know you know this. You have heard it, you have turned, and you have trusted in Jesus. And I'm sure you're still thinking, okay, I get that doing the Father's will and doing Jesus' words involves responding to the gospel in faith. But surely, surely there is more to it than just that, right? Didn't? Didn't you warn us before about about people who think that all you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer and, and that they'll be right? And my answer is, yes, that's right. It certainly means what Jesus is saying, the, the one who hears my words and does them, certainly means more than just trusting in him. But we must not think it means less than that or something that doesn't include that. And that's what I'm getting at. You see, we can hear, do the Father's will, and we can hear, do my words, and we can so easily forget the gospel of grace and think that our entry into the kingdom is dependent on how well we obey. Brothers and sisters, that is legalism. That is works-based righteousness. But to think that once you've received your entry ticket, God requires nothing more from you, that would be a grave mistake. And this is, as I mentioned, a great temptation and a pitfall in Protestant thinking. And actually, it's not a new one. In a debate against a Roman Catholic cardinal named Sadolito, 
John Calvin, five centuries ago, had to defend this very idea. He was challenged by the cardinal. If good works don't contribute to salvation, why bother doing them? If justification happens in a moment and we receive it by faith, what would motivate a Christian to keep striving for holy living? Let me share with you a small part of Calvin's letter in his response. It might be tricky to keep pace, but I will summarize it for you in the end. We deny that good works have any share in justification. But we claim full authority for them in the lives of the righteous. Wherever, therefore, that righteousness of faith is, there too Christ is. And where Christ is, there too is the spirit of holiness who regenerates the soul to newness of life. On the contrary... Where zeal for integrity and holiness is not in vigor. There neither is the Spirit of Christ nor Christ himself. And wherever Christ is not, there is no righteousness. Nay, there is no faith. For faith cannot apprehend Christ for righteousness without the Spirit of sanctification. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you notice the binary, once again, that he embodies, that he gets from Jesus? Calvin is saying his point is that the person who has received justification, the person who has received salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that person has also received his Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of holiness. And so if a person claims to be in Christ, but has no zeal for holiness, then Christ is not in them. The one who has received Jesus hungers for, lives for, strives for holy living. As James says, faith without works is dead. You can say that without being afraid of legalism, brothers and sisters. And you can do that with all the passages of Scripture that tie obedience to faith, like Jesus does in John 14, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can do it with confidence, still believing and knowing and trusting in the gospel because your faith does not depend on your works. But if works are absent from your faith, if they don't flow from your faith, then it is dead. The person who has responded to God's word and called to repent and believe also responds with faithful, grace-driven pursuit of obeying God's will, of doing what Jesus calls us to. The two go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. But how do we assess this? Is it a matter of examining our lives and making sure we've got enough good works happening to be confident in our faith? 
I mentioned that for some of us, this can be a nerve-wracking, fear-inducing thing. It seems to us, you know, for those who, who, who really struggle with this, who struggle to find assurance in, in, in seeing God's spirit work in our lives, we think to ourselves, well, the, the holiness that I'm supposed to be growing in, it's, it's not happening fast enough. We, 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 we think that it's not happening reliably enough. My, my journey of, of living a holy life continues to roller coaster up and down. I have wild swings between one and the other. Or we look around at other Christians who have been on the journey for half as long as we have, and they seem to have double the holiness that we have. And we think, surely, surely I'm, I'm not, I haven't got this right. In short, we interpret doing the will of God and doing Jesus' words as clearing a certain bar of holiness. We think the only way I can be assured is if I get to this level. If only I can just get to this holiness KPI. If only I can get to, to this level of XP. In Don Carson and John Woodbridge's book of fictional letters from an older saint named Paul Woodson to a younger believer named Timothy. He's addressing Timothy who has just come to faith and is struggling with his assurance. You see, in this book, Timothy's problem is that since converting, he has only become more aware of his sin and his failings. And he is greatly discouraged by it. So the wise Mr. Woodson encourages him by talking about what he calls our subjective grounds of assurance, our self-examination that shows evidence of God's work in our lives. You see, sometimes we wrongly think that the only evidence is when we get it right. But conviction of our sin, that is just as much a sign of the Spirit's work. And so Woodson writes, But what discourages you, I see as a sign of life. Not the sin itself, but the fact that you are discouraged by it. Sometimes we need the help of others to see the work of God's Spirit in our lives. But ultimately, to look only at subjective assurance will likely leave us hopeless or self-righteous. That is, after all, what the false followers of the previous passage did. They looked at all the things that they did in Jesus' name without considering whether they were based on truth or not. We must, as Mr. Woodson also reminds his younger friend, we must primarily look not just to the subjective ground of our assurance, but the objective ground. We must look to the one who guarantees our salvation in spite of how much we falter and fail in our obedience to him. And that brings us to our third and final heading, assuring authority. We come now to the end of the Sermon on the Mount which we have been preaching through over the last few months. We have, having sat under a body of teaching that would change the course of history. These verses 
don't just conclude the last few passages, but the entire sermon. And we see the response of the crowd who heard it firsthand. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The people were astonished, amazed, full of awe, gobsmacked, wowed, speechless. And why? Because he taught with authority, unlike their scribes. You see, their scribes were the ones who interpreted the law. They, they depended on others who interpreted the law. But not Jesus. As we saw all through the Sermon on the Mount, he told them where true blessing came from. Those who are poor in spirit, merciful, peacemakers, and included those who were committed to him even in the face of persecution. He said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he interpreted the law and the prophets truly and rightly, dispelling what the scribes and the Pharisees had taught, drawing out the true intention of the law. He was the one who would equate his words with the Father's will, daring to call him my Father. And he's the one to whom people will make their appeal when they seek to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's the one who will welcome his sheep and send away those that he never knew. Though it may seem subtle, or especially to us today, obvious, these are radical claims. No wonder the people were astonished. The kind of authority that Jesus claims for himself in the sermon is nothing short of astonishing. And brothers and sisters, we ought to be astonished as well. But we can be not just astonished. We can also be joyful, hopeful, and ultimately assured. Why? Because Jesus' authority doesn't just mean that he is God and that he will judge. That is true. His authority also means that he has done what he came to earth to do. He has defeated sin and the grave, and we can trust that he has done all that he needed to do in order to open the gate to the kingdom of heaven for us. His authority extends over death and the grave, Satan and his minions. He, brothers and sisters, is the ground of our assurance. He is the foundation of our faith. So yes, we must examine ourselves. We must ask if we are on the right path. We must heed the warning that being a false follower is a real possibility. We must run from that for as, with all energy and zeal that we can and run towards Christ. But we must remember that the ground of our assurance, the foundation of our faith is not our good works. It is not how well we obey. 
It is Christ. It is himself. His authority as Lord and Savior, his finished work and sure promise that he will welcome us into his kingdom. What a glorious assurance that is. Far more dependable, far more reliable, far firmer than anything we could conjure up in ourselves. The confession that I quoted earlier doesn't stop there, but it goes on. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. So brothers and sisters, whenever we examine ourselves to make sure we're on the right path, As we look to our own lives, we must do as the 19th century Scottish Reverend Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of the authority of Jesus. Our King, our great High Priest, our Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would hold us firm. That we may not fall, that we may not falter that we may not fail. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives to encourage, to form zeal for holy living, zeal for being obedient to you. But Lord, may that be a zeal that is not based on thinking that that is what will save us, that that is what will earn us our ticket into the kingdom of heaven. But may it flow from a heart of praise and a heart of thankfulness, from a heart that has been filled with your Holy Spirit by your grace. God, may our meditation on the gospel result in lives that evermore seek to turn away from sin and disobedience and towards greater love and obedience of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.